Good morning, everyone. I forgot, I'm already hooked up in something else, all right. Good morning, everyone. I'm very glad to be here. And as I look out across this way, I recognize some familiar faces. And uh, that's a great delight to my heart and blesses me a lot. So I'm grateful to be here today with you all and to share the word of the Lord through a lot of my own story. So uh, if you have your Bibles with you, Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through 17 is where I want to begin this morning. I want to talk a little bit this morning about my own journey and story of holiness. And because it's a lot of my story, I get to pick some of my favorite passages this morning. John 15 is one of my all-time deeply uh, favorite and formative passages. And this right here is the story of healing that I go to the fastest. It's the one that, for some reason, speaks the language of my heart. So join with me in Luke chapter 13, verse 10. Now Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and just then there appeared a woman with a spirit that had crippled her for 18 years. She was bent over and was quite unable to stand up straight. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said, Woman, you are set free from your ailment. When he laid his hands on her, immediately she stood up straight and began praising God. But the leader of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had cured on the Sabbath, kept saying to the crowd, there are six days on which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be cured and not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to give it water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 long years, be set free from this bondage on the Sabbath day? When he said this, all his opponents were put to shame, and the entire crowd was rejoicing at all the wonderful things that he was doing. So Holy Spirit, we know that you're here present with us. We know that your word is living and active in us, and that there is a message for each of us through it today. We ask Jesus that you'd open our hearts and our ears to hear from you. Amen. So when my husband Clint and I were first married, like really first married, like weeks in, our very first home uh, was here in the city of Wilmore, and it was a pink trailer, like really like one of those single wide pink trailers that someone had backed up behind a house on Asbury Drive and left it there for years. And this was our first home, $165 a month was our rent. And we were poor. Now we weren't poor, like globally poor, but we were poor in our minds. I mean, we were poor enough that we were, we were returning our, uh, our wedding gifts for cash to eat. That's, that's how poor we were. So we were poor. My husband Clint was uh, installing toilets at Hampton Inn in a temp job. <laughs> I was beginning my very first seminary class in Dr. Wong's New Testament history class. It was my, our first full semester of being married together, and we were living on love. Those of you who know about this, you know, you, we are living on love. I don't know if we could live that in that pink trailer now. I'm sure we could. But back then, 
It was the romance and glory of living on love in that trailer. Well, we had uh, lots of theories about that pink trailer, and one was that if you kind of squinted, it kind of looked like maybe it belonged beside a lake because it had this rickety old front porch along the whole side of the trailer. And so if you walked on that rickety front porch, you could kind of imagine if you didn't really if you really were creative, you could kind of imagine that that grassy backyard was kind of like a, a lake, and this was actually a lake house, so that was my imagination at work. When you went into this pink trailer, well, the nice thing was that the people that we were renting it from had uh, put in brand new carpet and brand new linoleum, so that was a very nice feature. However, uh, we soon learned some really interesting things about this pink trailer. One was that they had told us, and it comes with a washing machine. Okay, so in the little uh, cupboard or uh, closet that the washing machine was in, we only used the washing machine one time because when it hit the spin cycle, it literally moved out into the living room. <laughs> literally, <laughs> it moved across the floor like it was alive. And uh, the door started flapping open on the cabinets and dishes started rattling. We had our own miniature earthquake, so we shut down the washing machine usage very quickly. Another thing that happened soon is that we recognized that we were sharing our space with a family of possums underneath our trailer. And these are good old Kentucky possums. These were not small possums. These were the big old granddaddy possum, or at least one of them was, and with the whole family of youngins. And our trailer was pretty low to the ground, so we could actually hear the backs of the possums bump on our trailer <laughs> as they walked around. And on the top of our metal roof trailer, there was a family of squirrels. So we were woken every morning to them prancing down on that metal roof and running across it. One of the first things Clint did when we moved in was to duct tape the outside, because there was literally uh, cracks to the outside where the trailer was coming together. But nevertheless, we were living on love in that place until one day. One day I was in the living room and we had this kind of vintage old church pew running along our little teeny tiny living room that consisted of the church pew and perhaps one coffee table. But we had this church pew and we had some stacks of games, you know, the Scrabble that we got for our wedding, etc. Monopoly. Anyway, so I knelt down and moved the games out in order to vacuum under the church pew. And as I did, I noticed there was something strange under that church pew. And so I kind of kneeled down to get a better look and there was something kind of brown. And, and, and I realized it was a whole crop of mushrooms. That, that the floorboards were literally rotting underneath the new carpet and the new linoleum to the point that mushrooms were sprouting through the carpet. <laughs> it was shortly after that that we moved to uh, above the tack shop at Sims, which had its own series of many interesting stories. You'll have to invite me back for those stories. <laughs> So uh, we discovered that this pink trailer, which when you walked in, it did have this nice new linoleum, this nice new carpet. We, we knew it was kind of old, but after we lived in it a while, we realized that it was rotten, like the floorboards were rotten. And what I want to share with you this morning is a little bit of my own testimony about the journey of holiness, because I realized and am realizing that I have some pink trailer theology in my life. That I've had some pink trailer theology 
that hopefully is getting uh, rooted out, thanks be to God, but that uh, in the midst of what seemed to be a foundation of love and holiness and grace, there was actually some rotten floorboards and there were some mushrooms and fungus that was intertwining into my soul and into my own brokenness. And unfortunately, it was under the guise of holiness. So first of all, I am an Asbarian through and through, like, like a, I'm a super Asbarian, let me tell you why. My family moved here when I was 10 years old for my, my father to teach Christian ministries at Asbury University. And as I grew up in this community, uh, my youth pastors were Asbury students. My, my Sunday school teachers were Asbury college or seminary students. My public school teachers all the way through were spouses of Asbury students. My, my public substitutes were often Asbury seminary students. <laughs> I was well surrounded with the Asbury community before I became a student on either campus. I've got great memories of this place. I saw Empire Strikes Back in the gym at age 11 here on this campus. I was in the swim club in the old seminary pool led by a seminary student. So I would come there after school in middle school and do my laps as part of the swim team. This, I, I, I had knelt at probably every altar at Asbury Seminary and College before I even became enrolled. I attended Fall, in, fall Revival. I went to weddings here, went to services here, saw the Christmas bells. My, my friends were faculty children of both the seminary and the college. My discipleship group leaders were Asbury Seminary students, so as you can see. And then I went on to Asbury University and graduated from there, and Asbury Seminary and graduated from here. So that's why I feel like I can claim that super Asburyan title, that this has been my home. And uh, part of my experience in this place and in the Wilmore community was being raised in this idea of holiness and being raised uh, in, in part of uh, the, the holiness movement as it was understood through the lens of Asbury University in a lot of ways and also through Asbury Seminary. And there were so many wonderful and good things. My teenage years and my college years were filled with an earnest desire to be a surrendered disciple of Christ. I had many times where I felt like that the Lord was calling me to give 100% of myself, that there was more yet to give, and that I didn't want to hold back on anything. And Jesus met me here and in this place and in this community in profound, profound ways. But there was something else. Somehow, no one's fault, no university's fault, no seminary's fault, no spouse's fault, no family's fault. But somehow, the doctrine of holiness entangled in my own brokenness. And I began to understand holiness about performance, perfection, and pleasing. And I began to under, understand discipleship about reaching a bar that I could never reach. And instead of having a testimony of peace, I had a testimony of never being enough. And instead of living in the grace of God, I lived in anxiety that I was never surrendered enough, did enough, was enough, was holy enough, was earnest enough, that there was always another message, that there was always something that I hadn't 
gotten right. Because somehow my heart and ears heard this pink trailer theology that to be holy meant that you could never be fully at peace with yourself. And that to be holy was that I constantly needed to be striving, not abiding, but striving after the work of God. And even as I say those things, I have this counter message in my ear that says, well, it's true, there is always more to surrender. It's true, there is always more to put your shoulder to. But that became the dominant message. To be holy meant more about behavior modification than it meant about heart transformation. To be holy became, unfortunately, a spirituality of shame that twisted itself so well in my heart that I think that it's been a couple of decades of the Holy Spirit untangling and untwisting my performance and perfectionism and pleasing with the power, patience, peace, and presence of Jesus Christ. Now, I am a lover of holiness, and I believe in the power of holiness in our lives. And I believe that it was through the seminary and classes and my experience here with community and with discipleship and mentoring that people began to speak that truth of the power of holiness into my life that released me and continues to release me from the bondage of perfectionism and not getting it right. So I chose this passage, this Luke 13 passage, because I love it a lot, eh? but also because I want to take us back a little, a long ways to what Jesus encountered when he found himself amongst very holy, pious Jews. And if you remember, when Jesus came on the scene, there were some clear ways to be holy among the Jews. There were clear ways to demonstrate your devoutness. You had to show up at, at temple at the right time of year. You had to make sure that your sin was paid for in transaction in the presence of God that was located at a temple. Your holiness was dependent on a geographical place in which to encounter God. Your holiness was also dependent on the food laws and Sabbath laws that you kept with great piety, with great earnestness that your heart was about trying to get those rules right. Your holiness and your devoutness was also about your family lineage, who your mama and daddy was. And the more blameless you were, was the more you could trace your family line into the tribes of Jacob. Because that was how you identified yourself as the devout and pious Jew. There was a physical marker of circumcision. <clears throat> there was the call to be always more pious and more devout. And it's into this world that Jesus shows up. And all through the Gospels, he does this thing where he takes the bar that has been set so high for piety and devoutness and holiness and what it meant to be a member of the kingdom, what it meant to be an earnest, godly person. And he took that bar and he lowered it to acceptance. And he said, it's, it's no longer about who your family is. It's no longer about 
how well or perfectly you're following the laws. It's no longer about going for forgiveness at a particular geographical location. It is now about the power of the presence of Christ in your life. It is now about heart transformation. We see Jesus uh, speaking to this in this passage. First of all, we see that he's going to a synagogue on the Sabbath. He recognizes that the synagogue or the temple, or in this case the synagogue, was the place where the work of God happened. And here he's at this place and he calls the woman over and he sees the woman perhaps out of the side of his eye and he calls her over. He identifies her as someone who belongs in the family of God and calls her over and heals her. And he does it on the Sabbath. And when the synagogue leader sees this, the synagogue leader is irate. He's furious. He's been teaching a certain way of holiness, and that means following the Sabbath laws. And instead, Jesus says, it's not keeping the Sabbath that defines you as devout in these rigid lines. It's the motivation of your heart. When your desire to keep a rule outsteps your desire for someone to live free from bondage, then your pious rigidity has counteracted the call of the God of the Sabbath. Because Jesus knew that the Sabbath was far deeper than rule-keeping. It was the place of healing, of recreating, and he did that very work and demonstrated, redefined what it meant to be a pious Sabbath follower. One of the things I love about Jesus is how, and I'm sure you do too, is how much he speaks into the condition of the Jewish woman all throughout scripture. And in this case, he sees this woman that is in this deep bondage. He calls it through, um, through bound by Satan in verse 16 for 18 long years. And he, he draws her to him and he heals her. And we see her released from the power of the bondage of Satan. We see a transaction or transformation is a better word. We see the transformation between Jesus and the gift of holiness and healing that, that he gives this woman. And we see a change that forgiveness and holiness no longer has to come at a geographical altar, but it can come and does come in the presence of Jesus in our lives. His very presence becomes the altar of transformation and change. So Jesus takes this, bar of accept, uh, uh, takes this bar and lowers it to acceptance, and then he raises the bar of commitment. Instead of saying that it's about food and Sabbath laws and about a physical marker and a geographical location of worship and sin payment, Jesus says it's about heart transformation. It's about relationship and intimacy it's about the presence of Christ in your life and the fruits of that that come from the presence of Jesus. One of my favorite scriptures is where the woman, when Jesus is speaking to the crowd, it's later on in Luke, and a woman calls out and says to him, Blessed are the breasts that nursed you and the womb that bore you. And he says, No, no. Better is the one 
that hears my word and does it. This is a powerful statement for women because to be a Jewish woman at that time, your entire piety and devoutness was bound up in your ability to give birth to a male heir. Your entire huge culminating act was to produce children in order to connect your family line into the ancestry of holiness. And Jesus says, it's no longer about motherhood. It's no longer about what you produce as a woman. But instead, it's about discipleship being your deepest identity. Jesus changes again and again the experience of a Jew, telling them it's no longer about these certain identities. It's about the power of the presence and relationship call of God in their lives. It's about the presence of Jesus. So in my own pink trailer theology, not good enough striving, the spirituality of shame that like wraps so tightly around my performance and perfectionism and pleasing, when the power of the presence of Jesus comes into my life, then I'm no longer bound by these self-discipline behavior modifications as spiritual growth. You see, it's not that, and you know this, it's not that there isn't something to put our shoulder to. It's not that this work that Jesus raises the bar, this commitment, this holding nothing back, doesn't require all of our hearts, all of our beings, all of our soul, all of our energy. That is the work of God in us. But when we become our own spiritual directors, when we become our own people who control and seek to manufacture our own holiness, then we've lost sight of the message of holiness in our lives. One of my favorite uh, childhood stories is that story about frog and toad. Does anyone read those frog and toad books when you were little? Yeah. <laughs> and one of my favorite ones is when frog like, plants the seed in the ground and frog is standing over there, waters it, and then he's like, okay, ready for you to grow. And then he says, grow, grow. He starts screaming at it, grow, why won't you grow? And then Toad comes in and says, frog, you're scaring it out of growing. Do you remember that little childhood book? A friend of mine said that to me once. She said, Sarah, your holiness is like you're scaring yourself out of growing. You're screaming at yourself so hard that you're not trusting the work of the Holy Spirit. A huge defining moment in my own story was in my late 20s. And I realized that the Holy Spirit was responsible for my holiness. <laughs> what a concept. <laughs> that I couldn't make myself be more holy. That there was nothing I could do to add more holiness to my spirit. I could be present and show up. And then it was God's work in me. And you know, even when I was one-tenth present and half asleep, the amazing thing of the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit continued to pursue me and continued to do that work in me. And even when I wasn't 100% sold out and surrendered, the crazy thing was that the Holy Spirit kept after me. And even when 
I stopped doing devotions and recording it in my little checklist. <laughs> the Holy Spirit sought after me. This was a powerful transformational change in my life that I could release my own soul development to the Holy Spirit. Now, perhaps this is something that is already part of your story and you've got this. I hope so and believe so in many ways. But I know that I spent the last 20 years of my life working with young people in a university setting. And I know that when I see people, my students and young adults, and as they're growing older, <laughs> not quite so young adults, I know that as I see them wander and leave the faith, one of the pieces is, you all work so hard, it's just, there's no peace. Like there's just so much like, go, 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 strive, strive, strive. It's not enough, it's not enough, it's not enough. So I know that this pink trailer holiness theology is still out there. I know that instead of exhibiting people that live in the space of peace, open and trusting that the Holy Spirit will bring his work in us to fullness and completion and maturity as we walk the path that God gives us, I know that there is somehow we convey this message of white-knuckled holding on to our own wholeness with our own <laughs> bare hands. And that somehow others translate our earnestness as self-abnegation and our devoutness and piety as lack of peace and trust in the power of the Holy Spirit. So I think that in the story of the woman in the synagogue, you can imagine, I imagine that woman was bent over something like this, said she was bent over, she couldn't, couldn't unbend, she was crippled in half. It doesn't say this in scripture, but in my imagination, when Jesus goes over to heal her, I can't, I can't imagine Jesus healing someone without looking them in the eye. I just can't, you know? So to me, this is the Jesus who like kneels down on the floor and is able to look in the eyes of the woman who is bound up and crippled and is able to put his hands on her and say, be healed, helping her move and straighten. Time and time again in the Gospels, when we see transformation happen, we see forgiveness of sin happen, we see healing happen, it's the presence and touch of Jesus. And I know that this is my testimony, that the presence of Jesus invades my life, eyeball to eyeball, in the most crippled and bent over places of my heart, and in a way that is not condemning and not of shame. Instead, the invitation to wholeness and holiness helps me stand up straight in the spirit through the power of his presence. So to me, perhaps to you, the gift of holiness is the power of Jesus in you and in me, bringing us to maturity and completion, taking the small bits of our heart that we're able to give away, taking it and filling it, and always in the work of healing us and making us holy.
And you know, I hope that when I'm old and have walked this journey with Jesus, I hope one of the fruits that people sense from me is a deep patience with myself and a deep peace that God is about that transformational work in me. And that I put my shoulder to it, but it's always Jesus's. And right where I am is the very best place that God wants me. So in my Quaker tradition, we often end a service with a query. Quakers really love queries and questions. Our whole doctrine is full of queries. (laughs) So my query for you is, in your spiritual work of holding nothing back for God, are you carrying any shame or condemnation that keeps you in the pink trailer? Is there ways that God wants you to trust what God is doing in you and not hold on so tightly and rest in the work of the Holy Spirit? I'm going to give a minute or two for silence for you to listen to the Holy Spirit. It's another Quaker practice that we have, putting silence into our worship services. So in your spiritual work of holding nothing back for God, are you carrying any shame or condemnation that keeps you in the pink trailer? Is there ways that God wants you to trust what God is doing in peace and grace? Let's listen to the Holy Spirit together. So, Holy Spirit, we are your people here. We are thankful that it tells us in our word, in your word, in James, that you will bring to completion, to wholeness, to that Matthew 5 perfection, which is complete and whole, that you will bring us to wholeness in your time and in your ways. Thank you that we can trust that. I ask Jesus that you would speak to those deep places in our heart where We have that pink trailer, rotten theology that really creeps in and keeps us crippled. And Jesus, we know that this world uh, needs our testimony of grace and peace and trust in you. And we're incredibly grateful that uh, you take our our 1%, our 2%, our 23%, our 54%, our 78%. You take where we're at and what we can give. And Holy Spirit, you're always inviting us into more of you, but you receive us without shame, without condemnation, without wanting us to be further down the journey. You receive us, and by the power of your words, you cleanse us because of your presence in our lives. So thank you, Jesus. 
Come, Holy Spirit. Amen.